Biometric authentication uses signals from a human's unique biology to verify identity. Forms of biometric authentication include fingerprints, eye patterns, and the way a person walks, otherwise known as gait. Unify ID is a company that builds systems for biometric authentication. John Whaley is the CEO of Unify ID, and he joins the show to talk through these techniques for biometrics, as well as the implementation details that Unify ID has built to turn these into a reality. I want to mention that we are looking for writers as well as podcasters. We are considering opening up a number of positions for people to podcast for Software Engineering Daily to broaden the voices and the ideas and the concepts that are explored on Software Engineering Daily. You can send an email to eric at softwareengineeringdaily.com if you're interested in being a podcaster. John, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. You work at Unify ID, a company you co-founded, and you do biometric authentication. What does that mean? So there's all these things that are very unique about each uh, each of us. I mean, um, I mean, the most common type of biometric authentication you know about is things like like fingerprints. You know, everybody ostensibly everyone's fingerprint is unique, and then you can record that and then know that that is that whether it's you or not. I mean, so what we do is something called bi- um, behavioral biometric, which basically instead of looking at something static like your fingerprint, we look at your behavior, like this dynamic behavior that you do, things like the way that you walk or the way that you hold your phone or, you know, there's, there's millions of other little idio- little habits and idiosyncrasies that you have and then use that for authentication. And by doing that, we are able to get something that's very seamless that just you know doesn't require you to require any conscious user action. You can just be yourself, and there's enough that's unique about you. We can actually authenticate you uh, based on that, and it's continuous. So you don't need to, you know, you, you can get up away, you know, walk away from a computer. You put your phone down, you know, somebody else picks it up, things like that. We're able to detect that uh, that change, and then know whether it's you in a very seamless way. I feel like biometric authentication has been a thing for a while. There have been a lot of companies that have tried to do this. Why is Unify ID different? Yeah, so the biggest difference is the, is the type of factors that we use. We focus entirely on passive factors, so things that that don't require any conscious user action to do. I think that's always been the the challenge with any form of authentication is the users, is the the, the human beings. It's just human nature. I mean, people are naturally lazy, and they like they don't want to go through these additional authentication steps because it adds friction to the user experience. I mean, if you look at the way that people choose passwords, I mean, there's been plenty of, of information about, uh, you know, with password breaches and how to choose a good password, etc. You know, if you look at every year, the list of breached passwords, it's always the same password, just, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, or the word passwords or these, those type of things. And so, you know, get, changing human behavior is really hard. Now, I mean, if you look at just historically across technology, like there's always been uh, the shift where initially human beings have to adapt to the limitations of technology. And then eventually technology reaches the point where humans, uh, where it can adapt to humans and the way that they are. And so authentication is not a new problem and it I mean it goes back to prehistoric times any social creature needs the ability to then 
identify and authenticate like are you who you say you are is this you know are you part of my group or not you know that's uh, this this goes back a long time you know before technology existed and the way that people have had always did in the past was you know you look at their face you hear their voice you know you see the you know the context under which you see them maybe their possessions things like that and but it was always a very natural thing and then you know passwords came along around 450 years ago now and so this was very much of adapting to the limitations of technology let me enter these you know these sequence of of symbols and numbers and, and letters and like that's how you know that it's going to be it's, it'll be me right but that's not the way that that people had traditionally uh, identified themselves in the past and and you know it's i think it's it's about time that now now technology has now reached the point where individuals can be themselves and then there's enough sensors in people's lives as well as like the technology has reached the point that you can then identify people just for by their natural behavior rather than having them do something explicit so you know the difference is because we're doing this completely passively it opens up a lot more different use cases where you don't really have to change the user experience you can just have a much more seamless user experience like opening a door for example you know with our technology like you we make an sdk you can link it to any ios or android app we also have you know components for web you know javascript as well but you know you walk up to a door and you have the app installed and then the door already knows that it's you and then the you know the the, the door is able to unlock you don't need to take out your phone and, and do something extra and so for use cases where you have security concerns but you also care about the user experience that's uh, that's where you know our technology really comes to play so you're talking about like i've got my phone in my pocket i'm walking up to a door as I'm walking up to the door, my phone is measuring my gait through its accelerometer or something like that. And then, and then the, like Bluetooth talks to the door and tells the door I have my phone or is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. So, and we were able to use gate and our gate analysis is very accurate. We were able to get accuracy on par with a physical fingerprint. So about one in 50,000 false positive rate, just based purely on somebody's gait. And so this is, there's a lot of science that goes, uh, that goes behind it, behind it. And we have a lot of peer reviewed publications, et cetera, on, on the accuracy and, and, and how exactly the technology works. But yeah, like it turns out that these little aspects of your motion and your, your behavior are unique enough that you can actually use them for, uh, for authentication. And so because you're able to do this passively, uh, you can do this, you know, in, in cases where, I mean, it's not just doors and physical world, like, you know, a car or an ATM or travel or et cetera, but, but also, you know, I, I walk up to my computer and I sit down or I'm, I'm hailing a ride on my, on a rideshare app or like getting a food delivery or these type of things. There's a lot of these little aspects of people's behavior that are unique that you can use to, to passively authenticate them. And not only for authentication, but also de-authentication. Like everyone always talks about how do I authenticate the user? Nobody talks about how do I de-authenticate them? And the, the way that people do that today is they'll just set a timeout. They'll say, well, okay, after an hour or a day or a month, like, you know, they're going to, we're going to force them to re-authenticate because we don't really know what, like when, when somebody leaves and it's not the same person anymore, when you're able to passively monitor their behavior, like this is why it's called implicit authentication, because you're able to authenticate without making any explicit action. You can just implicitly, you know, be authenticated just by your natural activity because it's just passive and it doesn't require the user to do anything, then you can also handle de-authentication cases as well to be a much, in a much smarter way, you know, so I get up and I walk away from a computer, you know, automatically locks, it logs me out. I walk over the computer, it automatically logs me in. Those, that's the type of, of use cases that, uh, that this technology enables. Is there anything other than gate analysis that is worth mentioning? 
Yeah. So we look at a number of other environmental factors and, and, and other type of behavioral factors as well. So environmental factors, these are things like around your device, like what are the set of Bluetooth beacons and Wi-Fi access points and what are the exact RSSI values, you know, that they have when you are in a particular position or location, right? And these type of things and, 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 you know, and location and location history, not just where you are right now, but where you came from. I mean, these all provide little hints. And now they're not, these type of, uh, this type of data is not necessarily useful for, for, you know, identification of a particular individual, because there may be other people who, you know, who are in the same building as you, or, you know, kind of who have access to your physical space um, and, you know, we'll be able to replicate those. But Again, this is just kind of a noisy signal. You combine you can combine multiple of these noisy signals together, and they get get something that is more where you say, "Well, okay, yes, look, the the phone is in the person's house. I see like the the gate. You know, somebody walks up and like the the gate matches. I see them sit down. The way they sit down is the way that they normally do. The Wi-Fi access points are all you know consistent with what I've seen before. You know, maybe the person has a wearable device or you know other type of Bluetooth you know headset, etc. You know, the, uh, these are also consistent. At that point, when you see all of that data. You know, asking the user for a password at that point is really, you know, you're not really adding much security at that point because you already know fairly conclusively that that this is going to be the correct user when you combine the biometric aspect along with, you know, um, some of the environmental aspects. And so this is what people have always thought of authentication as a binary, like yes or no. It's like, yes, it is definitely you or no, it's definitely not you. And the truth is that these are, even when using passwords or knowledge-based factors, there's no absolutes. I mean, all you know, when you get a password and a password matches, all you really know is that somebody, you know, provided the same sequence of, of characters, right? And there are plenty of other ways to get somebody's password. I mean, you can, they, people can be phished. They may have just chosen like a bad password. They may have reused a password that they use somewhere else. So the notion of like using a password as like as you know as a form of identity i mean it it has its pros and cons but certainly it's there's it's not perfect and i mean there's also you know the other ways that people do authentication like based on knowledge based factors like what's your mother's maiden name or what's your social security number this type of data you know increasingly is you know at one point in time, it was supposed to be private data is increasingly not private data in this era of data breaches and, and everything else. So like these are not reliable factors to be able to then uh, to, to be able to to authenticate someone. I mean, even just the whole notion of I'm going to validate your identity by using information from public records to determine whether it's you or not. I mean, there's there's an inherent contradiction in that, but that's a status quo. I mean, that's the way that people do it, you know, uh, today. They'll ask you, you know, do you have a mortgage at this address or, you know, where did you grow up? Or like, you know, these these, these type of questions that maybe with a, a little bit of, uh, of research, a hacker can very easily figure out what the answer to, to these questions are. Not to mention the fact you'll reuse the answers everywhere. So one data breach anywhere will then uh, compromise you everywhere. This is why, again, there's no silver bullet in authentication or security, but this capability of being able to passively authenticate someone without requiring them to, to do any uh, user action was something that didn't exist five years ago. It, does, it exists now, and you know, I, I think, and we think that it's gonna be an important capability you know, within the tool set of, of authentication going forward. So if this was as simple as collecting the Bluetooth signals that my phone has been around and collecting the gate of me and knowing that this is my fingerprint, that would be pretty easy. You could just like hash those together or something and get an exact match and that's me. 
But I assume that there has to be some kind of fuzziness. There has to be some kind of wiggle room because I'm not always going to be around the same Bluetooth devices. You know, I'm, my, my fingerprint is going to change over time. Maybe I sprain my ankle and my gait changes. How do you deal with those kinds of variabilities? I mean, that's where the machine learning aspect comes in because you're absolutely right. Like this is, this cannot be an exact match. You know, it has to be a fuzzy match and it has to be, again, it's a probability distribution. And like you have these multiple probability distributions about, about different factors. It's like, well, what do you know, if you say, well, the gate mat would get the gate it was a strong match, but like the person's in an entirely new environment, you know, was that, uh, you know, is it, do we say that that's a user or not? I mean, there's kind of a, it depends, you know, on the, the use case and the threat models that you're, that you're worried about. And so this is why, you know, having, um, having that machine learning aspect there to be able to then go, you know, have these type of fuzzy matches is important, you know, to make a, to make something which works well in the real world. And can you tell me more about like the ensembling of different signals and, and machine learning and how you use it? Yeah. So we use machine learning at different levels. And this is not just deep learning, like let's take all of this data and like throw it at this magic thing called machine learning and then you, you can you know you'll magically get the answer. There are a lot of different aspects to machine learning and they're not, you know, in some cases we would do something very simple, in other cases it's gonna be much more much more complex and, and sophisticated. So at the basic level, if you look at each individual factor, like for example, somebody's gait or somebody's, you know, uh, you know, the way they walk or, you know, when they pick up the phone, that motion or their typing speed and cadence and the way that they're, you know, they move their phone around as they type or on a keyboard. These things like at that individual level, there's a lot of noise, inherent noise within that signal. I mean, much the same way when you're doing facial recognition, it's not, you can't just do like a pixel by pixel comparison. You know, in some cases, the lighting will be slightly different. You know, the person's head will be tilted in a different way, things like that. So this is what machine learning comes in where you, you provide enough examples of that of, for that user. And then the, the algorithm basically adapts to find the things. Okay, what are the things that are very consistent about this that make this person unique versus, you know, this is somebody else or this is somebody else who's trying to attack the system. And so in much the same way, we do the same thing for like each of these individual factors. So there's a big machine learning component when we're talking about individual biometric factors. Then on top of that, there's a meta level of, well, uh, you know, when I'm combining multiple of these things together, how do I actually make a decision about like whether this is the correct user or not? And so that's the place where, you know, there's kind of a, a we, we, it's not just a pure, like you know, unsupervised learning problem. We build in some prior knowledge from, from our customers and from, a, you know, human, having human beings being in the loop there. So the way that that, that works is that there is, you know, basically you can imagine that each of these, Imagine that you have a, um, a group of experts that are all, you know, they're all trying to argue about whether this is the correct user or not. And then each of those experts is a specialist in different areas. You may have a specialist like I am the gate specialist. I am looking at just like the person's gate, right? You have one, another one that'll be I am the location expert. I know everything about, you know, uh, location patterns and like the way that people behave, right? And then there's other ones that are specialists on Okay, I'm I'm a specialist in understanding attacks and sophisticated attacks and many people are trying to spoof data, right? And then so you can imagine that, that you know that that all of these they all you know get together in some conference and they're basically trying to kind of battle it out and then say, okay, well what what should be our final recommendation based on kind of all of these all of these different data points, right? And so the truth is to make a system that works well on that, you need something that's going to 
be able to then reliably identify which experts are reliable in different contexts and for different users. And so that, that can be an adaptive. It's not like the gate one always wins and the location one you know, is always second, these type of things. You want that to be adaptive and then vary depending on the user and the use case. The other key point there is that there are correlations between these factors. So like, you know, one of the experts being wrong, like often, I mean, because these, because there are some shared underlying process that's happening that they're both measuring that like when one of them is wrong then the other one is like may may often be like wrong in a correlated way right and there's also anti-correlations there as well so like understanding the these like what which of these these experts are correlated so you can then weight them appropriately that's what there's an additional like meta machine learning problem that's uh, that's on top of that that then uh, that is able to combine these in an intelligent way to ultimately provide a score. Now, what we provide is we provide a, a set of APIs that you can get access to that low-level data. For example, like here's what the user was doing. You know, we saw the user walk. They took 23 steps. Here's like you know, here's how the gate score, you know, the match score varied over time. We then saw them sit down. We saw them put their phone down on the table, and the phone has been still, you know, since this amount of time. Right? There's like those are the the raw ingredients that come into the the decision algorithms. We expose those as well because those are useful for you know you can tailor the the, the data there based on the particular use cases. But then we also provide this meta level of you know for passive authentication on top to say like okay, given all all of this data, how likely is it that the user is just sat down at their, at their computer and is trying to log in? Or how likely is it that they are trying to make a phone call, like call into a call center and say like, you know, and then is this the correct user? Or how likely is it that they're trying to approach this door? Right. And so these are the, that's the type of data that we can use. The last part I'll mention around the machine learning side is that it's not all about your data versus not. The truth is that, that there are many you know billions of people in the world and they all kind of they all act in a similar way and so much in the same way and the machine learning side like for things like image recognition and stuff it's not like if you want to train a something for image recognition the right answer is not to just go and collect all of your data your own own data like just to, you know to to do this the the right way to do it is to leverage some existing existing data like ImageNet and other things where they have many like huge huge data sets and then use transfer learning to then transfer that into your domain so basically like already within the machine learning you know the the, the neural networks um, that they've trained it already has a lot of the knowledge about okay well this is the general shape of things and here's how to distinguish between you know different individuals etc and then you can then specialize that problem just to work really really well for the um for like a particular individual or very particular use case you know hot dog versus not hot dog for example like that's a you know the way to do that is not like have a million images of that it's to basically use a user transfer learning so in a very similar way we have a huge data set like over 30 million uh, devices like with for of people who you know have, have volunteered to basically give their uh, to donate their data to this and then we use that to train these neuro these these big very accurate neural networks and then so for an individual we don't need that much enrollment data like we just need a small amount of enrollment data because we're leveraging all of that data just from humanity and like the way that kind of the way that people walk so we don't have to start from scratch every time we kind of start from 90 percent of the way there and it's like and then the question then becomes how are you unique like what makes you unique compared to other people and then just focusing on those aspects instead of just trying to to, to train the whole system from scratch the sdk component of this is is definitely appealing and because i think it's it's easy for people listening not to quite understand what we're talking about here but i could have like 
a, let's say I run, oh, you know, Monzo Bank, for example. I have no idea if Monzo is a customer of yours, but uh, Monzo Bank, I have a banking application on my phone and uh, you could make it so that Unify ID pairs or Unify ID is, is implemented in the Monzo app and they might want to use it to, uh, to use biometric authentication to know that the person who's holding your phone should have access to your Monzo banking app. Am I understanding the the use case correctly? That's right. Yeah. So we don't I mean, we don't make our own apps. We make some demonstration apps, but mostly we just integrate with within existing apps. And then this is a SDK you can just sit in the background. You know, there's we leverage the the permissions that whatever the app may may have. We don't require any special permissions because we just fundamentally all we really need is accelerometer data, uh, which doesn't require any special permissions to access you know if, if you do have additional permissions we can we can leverage those as well but then yeah and then you can then use that to then you know in the example of the banking app and this may be for you know it depends on what your use case is it may be for you know when when somebody calls into the call center from their phone we can tell the fact oh okay we saw like this behavior that happens like somebody picked up their phone we like you know we, we saw the like you know the, the motion associated with dialing we saw them bring it up to their ear etc then we're able to correlate that on the back end of like you know, when you dial into the IVR system to say this incoming call is actually coming from this physical device. And not only that, but this physical device is currently being hold, held by this person with, you know, 99.9% .9 accuracy because of, you know, we know they're calling from their house and like the motion associated with them with the with the call and the fact that they were, you know, they were previously walking, you know, a minute or two ago, like that you're able to combine all of this together. And then that provides a signal to the call center agent to say, hey, this is highly likely to be the correct person. You know, maybe you don't need to kind of, you can give them a much more personalized experience. Maybe you don't need to go through all of the security. Uh, and whereas on the other side, then you can, you know, if a lot of these signals don't match, then you can then flag this as, hey, this may be a potentially fraudulent call uh, that's coming in. And so you want to force the, you know, basically require the user to kind of go through some additional verification steps. And so it's not just about dialing in, it's also about like, I want to do some type of thing that requires a step up authentication. It's also not just on the phone, but also uh, on the computer as well. Like, you know, leveraging sensor data from the phone when you're going to log in on the computer on the website. Like, for example, you know, in, the, in your example, imagine that the user, you know, sits down and they want to do the online banking, like on their, you want to do online banking on the website, right? And so they go sit down and they go into the website. Well, it's, well, okay, like, you know, the last 10 times you saw you go to the website, you, like you were in this location, your phone was like this type of orientation because you're, again, creatures of habit, you know, do you put the phone down on the table? Do you keep it in your pocket? Like, you know, what orientation do you do that? What are the Bluetooth devices that are around you? Like all of these things. And then we're able to build a normative model and say, okay, well, the previous times we've seen this user try to do this action, this is approximately what it looked like. And then so we can then give you a kind of some match score that says, oh, how how consistent is this with what we've seen before? And and not just the, the visibility of what you see from a server side, like in terms of what IP address they're coming from, but just even like the behavior, the more detailed behavior information they have there. And so getting this extra level of visibility, then it allows you to just be much more adaptive around your authentication and decisions. And then, so you can then make, make intelligent decisions about, okay, do I need to send this push in, person a push notification to verify that they, you know, uh, to do this additional action or, do they need to, you know what, I'm, I'm already pretty confident I can give them a more, a more streamlined experience. Like you, you, you have the, the data and the ability to be able to make those type of intelligent and adaptive decisions. Is this kind of work data intensive? Like I, I'm trying to understand if it's 
just kind of lightweight data and, and this is not something that's that's really that intense or if this is like you have to collect tons and tons and tons of data and you have to do munging and stuff on the fly can you tell me more about like how data intensive uh, the unify id sdk would be so number one, like the data stays on the local device. Like we don't send that data up off the device. So the, the processing happenings happens locally. We've done a lot of work to get this to be highly optimized. I mean, we, you know, in, in, in terms of on the, mach- on the machine learning aspect, for example, we have a very highly optimized kernels that we use for many of the algorithms that we use because this is intended to run even on the lowest end devices and to do so without having an impact on battery life you know, or, or data usage. And so it's able to run in the background. The amount of power usage is very small because we've done quite a bit to, to, to optimize this. The other thing, just to be clear, it's not recording all of the time. It's only, it, we have intelligent triggers that, that say, well, okay, is something interesting happening? Like, hey, we've noticed the, the step counter changing or like, you know, it looks like somebody just got up and started to walk around. And we, ha- we haven't seen any gate scores for a while. You know, maybe let's record for a few seconds and just make sure this is still the same user you know, things like that, or, you know, other type of triggers that we have around location, et cetera, that are, that make it so that we can be intelligent about when we do processing and you don't have to be basically um, just, just processing and recording all of the time. The other thing is that we've done a lot of work to then make sure that this will run on low end devices as well. that's one of the benefits here is that, you know, if you think about biometric authentication in terms of things like touch ID or face ID, I mean, those are great, except for the fact that they're really only available on the more high-end devices. And the U.S. market, it's, you know, they're fairly common. As soon as you go outside of the U.S., you know, there's there are cases where, you know, the advanced sensor that you're talking about for, you know, the, the facial recognition or for the, the, the fingerprints, to make those to be hard to spoof, they have to, there has to be a, a certain level of sophistication within those sensors. Those become cost prohibitive for, for lower-end devices. But every device, every smartphone has accelerometer like everyone that's ever made has an accelerometer and the the notion of like the type of motion that we're we're collecting here it's like you know it's it's human motion so it's not so even the lowest end accelerometer and, and motion sensors have plenty of accuracy to be able to then tell the difference between uh, different individuals and so the part of the part of the benefit here is that you know this this is helps to bring this type of strong biometric authentication, even to devices that don't necessarily have the, the hardware or to lower end devices. And even in cases where you don't want to have that additional friction involved in like, okay, let me have to take my phone out and then, and make sure that this is, you know, and then have them require them to do a touch ID or a face ID, which by the way, like nowadays with the, you know, in terms of with COVID and everything, with people wearing masks and gloves, like there's those type of biometric authentication, like facial recognition become a lot less practical and applicable uh, in these type of cases. But Gates is, is because it's passive, it's happening in the background. There are many cases for, for which, you know, when you're out and about and you want to be able to have this type of continuous authentication, you know, things like Gate are a strong alternative to these uh, things like Touch ID or Face ID. Can you tell me about how your engineering teams are organized? Yeah, so we have um, we're a pretty engineering heavy organization. I mean, my my background. I mean, I was 
I was an engineer as well. I, I was a CTO in my previous startup, and I, I did my PhD at Stanford. I taught at Stanford as well. And so I have a, a very technical background. So we have within the company, we have, there's a client SDK team, which is, uh, you know, uh, from, Focused primarily on you know the iOS and the Android and the and the JavaScript SDKs. We have a backend team that is like focused more on the infrastructure, and then we have an ML engineering team, which is really about taking some of those more advanced algorithms and machine learning algorithms, and then implementing the getting those implemented in a in a production in, in a production way, right? And so that's how we that's that's how we have the the, the, the teams like within the company are, are, are organized. Obviously, there's a fair amount of, of overlap. I mean, like people kind of wear different hats at different times. It's, it's not like the client team is strictly working entirely on client. And then there's a back end, you know, the people on back end are only working on back end. You many times you're talking about protocols and, and, and other things and, and algorithms and then getting those implemented, everybody ends up having to work together. But, but, you know, in terms of the, the specialization, that's where, uh, you know, the, the, that's the structure of the teams that we have within the company right now. What are the hardest engineering problems you're dealing with right now? Yeah, gosh. So, I mean, this is certainly as you as you hear the description of like this type of stuff we do. Myself as an engineer, and I imagine your listeners are like just immediately thinking about, oh my gosh, like what are the things? All the things I have to uh, think about, worry about. I mean, battery is one thing that had come up. You know, kind of latency, security, like you know how to uh, like security system. You don't want it to be easy to to attack or break. You know, the machine learning aspect, the real time aspect. You know, there's there's a lot of that certainly there. This is a hard technical problem um, that we're that we're trying to solve, and this is something that had not been solved before, right? And so, but from my point of view, I mean, these are exactly the type of problems that I like to work on, and like the, our, our team likes to work on. I mean, think life's too short to work on, to do things that have already been done, and they've and that you know have already been proven out to make the kind of the nth iteration of like the the same thing. Like if you're going to spend your your life and your time on something, you want it to be something that's going to have a big impact um, and that that will matter, and it'll be something that's new and be something that's intellectually interesting, right? And so that's something that definitely you know what we work on has all of those aspects. You know, the, the huge impact obviously just in terms of like seamless authentication, authentication being such a huge problem for everyone, being a hard technical problem. This allows us to actually create real value. Um, you know, and like, if the problem were easy and, and anybody could solve it, then, you know, you didn't really create much value there. But like when we do run into to difficult problems and figure out a difficult uh, solution to them, then that means we created real value because the next person who comes along, they'll probably fall in that same pitfall and they may not be able to figure out how to get out. So we don't shy away from kind of uh, trying to tackle some of these difficult problems. You know, to be specific, I mean, some of the like, the, the biggest challenges that we have, number one is like this, you know, the the the, diff, the security and, and privacy and and machine learning. I mean, obviously, we don't want to become this uh, honeypot for everyone's data, and so you know. Uh, but but we want to build, be able to build a system that uh, that works and works well. So how to achieve this this type of machine learning in a distributed fashion? You know, where the where the data is staying on the local device, but you're still taking advantage of the of the global state. Um, that's a one one of the big technical challenges that we have. Another one is around the efficiency of our SDK. And because again, it, we, we need to be able to run in the background. It needs to be able to then do this with minimal impact on battery or resources on the on the phone. And so, how to be able to best leverage that? Uh, you know, to achieve that, you know, leveraging things like you know, we'll leverage things like if your phone has a GPU, like we uh, we can leverage that for 
for doing some background, you know, computation and everything, so we can free up the CPU on the phone, so that um, you know, to so we don't have as much of a performance impact, and it'll be more more efficient and more 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 power efficient as well, you know. And then optimizing things for communication, the times where we do need to do communication, deciding when we need to communicate, because the the, the power usage, um, you know, of of powering up that radio to be able to send data is significant. So those are on the client side. Those are some some challenges on the back end side. Things around scale and availability are always challenges, and how to do that in a way that's that is secure. That's uh, that's an additional challenge. And then on the machine learning side, like these are new algorithms. Like these are these are capabilities that nobody has developed before. You know, be able to identify somebody based on their gait, based on you know five seconds of, of walking data, etc. Like there's a lot of sophistication that happens there, and it's not just. I mean, it, it has to be this combination of math and like and 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 theory and like you know and and like machine learning you know algorithms and, and capabilities there wedded with what is practical and what is what we can actually implement to run in real time like on a phone it, it's required multiple innovations on that side just to be able to then get something that kind of works well now i mean we've been at it for a long time we've been working on this full time for the lot for the four last four years before that, there's a side project we've been working on for uh, for a time before that as well. There's a lot of history in the b behind it as well, but like this, that that is a never is a never ending quest within the company to improve the effectiveness of the solution, to handle more use cases, to handle more uh, get higher accuracy, handle more people, and so that that's been a big focus and will continue to be a big focus of our ML engineering team. Can you do domain specific? verification like i don't know i'm searching on amazon i'm looking on amazon and you're authenticating me as i'm behaving on the website yes we have capabilities to do that as well i mean if you think about the way that somebody clicks around a website the way that you you move your mouse or the way you scroll the way you type each of these are pretty unique to each individual and although like you don't like the amount of data you can get from within a web browser is limited there's quite a bit there like th those type of situations it's more useful for risk and fraud type of use cases where it's like okay let me detect if this is you know does this look suspicious in some way does it look like this might be an account takeover or this might be a some a fraudster like somebody who wasn't it wasn't the same person as it was before it's very hard because the the amount of data you have in these cases is very limited and often by the time you've collected the data it's kind of too late because they're already like, in the system at that point, then you don't, you know, it's more useful kind of for risk and fraud or kind of as supplemental factors, not as a primary authentication factor. If you want to have something that's going to be more of a, a stronger signal, a primary authentication factor, something that's not going to go from, okay, this is a one in 10 probability or one in a hundred probability to no, this is one in 10,000, you know, probability that, that or, or, or higher, then that's the case where you need to bring in some more historical data and bring in more context from other devices as well the other piece is on the security side you know you get a lot more security when your data stream is not coming just from one device right I and mean, if you're just looking purely from the web browser you know that's a very uh, thin data stream there of what you're actually able to collect like within the sandbox within that within that browser and it's more easy to compromise like in terms of if somebody has either some kind of like remote access agent or some other type of, you know, malware on that on that device, it becomes easier to compromise. Once you get to a point where it's like, well, I'm using data from the phone and the computer, that becomes a lot harder to compromise because that basically at that point you need to then have malware and, and control of 
both what the phone is reporting as well as what the computer is reporting. And so that becomes a, just a, a much more sophisticated level of attack. And so, yes, we, we do have capabilities around like, you know, for example, mouse movements, you know, the way that you click through sites, you know, the way you scroll, it turns out to be really unique for, for each individual. Typing also turns out to be unique. I mean, if you if you type around three sentences or so, then like then usually we can we can tell who you are, like uh, authenticate you just by the way that you type, not not necessarily what you're typing, but just by the way that you type. These are some of the signals you can use in the context of, you know, a web browser. Like on mobile web, you have additional signals there as well. You have, uh, you know, ability to then ha get access to motion, da motion data and you can correlate things like that so that when somebody is typing for example is the motion consistent you know not only like the way that they type like in terms of their how long they hold down each key and like you know what part of the key and like the, the speed of each of each keystroke etc but you can also take into account some of the motion data that's associated with the typing there i mean and then determine things like oh if this is like you know if somebody types with one hand or with two hands how they hold the phone what angle they they, they hold the phone you know the kind of how hard they tap like these type of things you can pick up via motion sensors there as well and then again like there's no like if you just look at those things in isolation it's not going to be uh, strong enough. You're not going to really get a great signal there. But this is why you have to look at like just the, the the whole thing in aggregate and then look at multiple signals. So that even if some of them may have a high positive rate or there may be, you know, there may be downsides or, or, or holes where like your, your gaps where you're missing data or places where there's false positives, things like that. Like by combining multiple of these passive factors together, you can get something that's, that's more highly accurate and, and avoid some of the downsides of each of these individual factors. I'm realizing now I don't fully understand the onboarding process. So let's say I'm a new user. I need to develop my fingerprint. Do I just like log into the app and then like walk around for a little bit and like scroll and stuff and that builds my profile? Yeah, precisely. I mean, there's no uh, there's no explicit onboarding. I mean, we do. So the most typical way that people do it is like, we'll just say, just have the app installed will just monitor your behavior, like the way you walk and the way you scroll and like these other things as just going through your normal life, right? Don't require the user to do anything. After about a week, like one week of, of calendar time, by then we usually have a, a pretty accurate model of uh, for that user. And then be able to then give pretty accurate results on whether this is the correct user or not. Now, of course, like there's perennial learning. So like what happens is that as you kind of, as you get more data then, and that data is then labeled as the correct user, then the, the algorithm improves. And so like, you know, in cases where somebody's behavior may suddenly change or, you know, the kind of, there's different modes of behavior, et cetera, we're able to then track that behavior and then adapt to it. But there, that's in general how, what a recommendation is. You can also do explicit training where it's like, okay, get up and walk 150 steps, and then like we're going to use that model, and we can generate a model based on that. And so that those type of cases, like the those work when you're in the similar context. So you know, if I do my training where I'm wearing a particular kind of shoes, and it's in an office, and I'm walking, you know, I'm I'm walking in the, on on a carpeted floor, etc. Like that, I can build a very, very like with only a small amount of data, I can build a very reliable model to say whether it's you or somebody else, kind of within that context. The issue comes is like, well, how resilient is that model? Like, if I if I if I you know change my shoes, I go barefoot. If I change my phone location, these things that can have, which that may naturally happen in other contexts. Then, if we don't have examples of those, then the the, the system is unlikely to 
be able to then match and say, you know, it's, it, it'll, it'll always err on the side of being conservative and say, well, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the user do this before. So I can't really say that this is the, um, uh, the user, you know, I, I'm going to return back something that's inconclusive or, or say that is not, this is, this doesn't match what I've seen before. Right. And so in terms of the training process, this is why kind of just one week of natural the user's natural life, we get enough variation in terms of their, their natural behavior, like on weekdays and weekends, you know, in different contexts, like when they're walking fast and slow, when they're kind of using the system in, in different ways to give enough variation there so that we can build a reliable model that's going to be resilient to these uh, to, to different type of changes. And like I mentioned, it's not, I mean, the training doesn't end after one week. Uh, we can, we have the ability to, to then include additional data, you know, like when we get, when we get data that where, for example, let's say that you were walking and you kind of, you hurt your, your ankle, you twist your ankle or something and your, your gait suddenly changed, or you move to a new city or like, you know, these type of things happen where you have a sudden change. Then what, what happens is that then our system will then come say, come back and say, well, this doesn't look like what we've seen before for this user. They will then go back and fall back to some type of explicit authentication. It could be, you know, biometric, like a face ID or a touch ID. It could be a knowledge base factor. It could be them calling in or, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do a kind of time of step up authentication or fallback authentication. In those cases, then they can say, they then verify, nope, actually this was the correct user. Then they can then tag that data and then say, okay, well, this recent data here, this was actually was the user, and then that feeds back into the machine learning model, and then that then from the uh, the subsequent times where we see similar context, then that's where we can then say, oh yeah, actually we've seen this before. In the previous times, this was labeled as the user. We think this is likely to be uh, the user. And again, like we we you know the the ultimate question that we're trying to to answer is that this is this is it's called a binary hypothesis test, where basically here is some recent data. Is this more likely to be you? Or like what we've, you know, based on what we've seen from you, is this more likely to be you or is this more likely to be like someone in the universe, like someone else, right? And so that's fundamentally the question that we're, that, that our product answers and then attempts to answer to say like, well, how likely is this to be you based on what we've seen? How likely is this to be you versus like somebody else in the universe? And then we give a probability distribution basically that says how likely that is based on, on the different factors that we've seen. Are there any ways to goose the system right now? Are there vulnerabilities that you know about that you can tell me about? Well, I mean, so we tried a number of different things. I mean, there's, you know, we've done things like we've done tests. We've run tests with identical twins where like people are genetically the same, but then you try to mimic each other's behavior. Our system does appear to be resilient against identical twins. And also, we've also done things where we've had trained actors trying to mimic other people's behavior. Those ones are like, we appear to be resilient. The type of factors we're using right now appear to be resilient against those type of things. The other things that we've tried have been different type of machine learning attacks. We have a, a lot of history in terms of adversarial machine learning and understanding with people are trying to do adversarial perturbations and other, uh, you know, kind of, you know, synthesized signals, etc. We've done a lot of work on there. I mean, now, just to be clear, there's no silver bullet in, in security. And like, and the only truly secure system is one that, you know, is just not, not turned on at all. I mean, like, basically, as long as every system has, uh, is exploitable, no matter what it is, it's just, you know, the goal here is to get is to make it so costly and inconvenient for somebody to attack that they will then go and, and try to do you know, th those go for easier targets. I mean, certainly if you're dealing with something where you have a state level actor, where somebody who has access to the supply chain, 
who you know has access to you know potentially zero day exploits or, or other kind of things, or even things like they will they'll bribe uh, one of our employees to go and kind of insert backdoors or things like that. Like in any system, like those type of risks exist. Now, obviously we we try our best to avoid these type of things. This is why like, you know, just architecturally, we, we, we keep the data on the local device. We don't want to become this honeypot, you know, so as, again, I mean, I don't want a situation where it's like, somebody will kidnap my kids and then say, oh, give us this data. And then I want to be able to legitimately tell them, okay, unless you have a p person's device, like I can't, like there's nothing I can do architecturally. We've architected the system in a way that that's impossible. Like that's what we strive to do. Like in terms of the the the, the architecture of the system, obviously with and, and things for operational security, etc. We do that. So I think that like there certainly are uh, attacks that that uh, that people can do that I think are within the realm of possibility. That you know we haven't been replicated, but I would not be surprised if you know a kind of well resourced enough adversary would be able to figure out some ways around around some of the things that we do. But again, because like because the things are passive, then in essence, like zero cost. I mean, it doesn't cost anything in terms of the user experience. So you can layer on and do as many of these things as you want. And it does and because it, you're not requiring the user to to then retrain or, you know, or do uh, change their behavior in any way, then that it becomes much easier to d deploy these type of things without a lot of friction and, you know, and then take advantage of multiple of them at the same time. Any predictions for the future of biometric authentication? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, in the future, like, I think authentication is going to change. Like even within, within the next three to four years, the password alone will no longer be the predominant method of authentication. And I would also venture to say that that the current, you know, even the current forms of 2FA will not be the predominant forms of 2FA, you know, even within a few years. If you look at the the status quo for for today for for authentication is just as a password alone. More and more services are starting to implement 2FA, but they implement 2FA by doing like I'll send you an SMS and then you type in a six-digit code and then that's how you know that it's me and there's uh, there are a large number of security issues with that that approach just in terms of the SMS protocol the SS7 protocol is just woefully insecure like problems with like sim you know sim swapping or kind of uh, you know cloning and number porting attacks these type of things it basically the situation is right now is if you if you get access to somebody's phone number you can probably get access to just about every other part of their digital identity because from the phone number you can usually get into their gmail account or their you know their core email account from the email account they can basically reset and get access to everything that's the status quo there can be more and more attacks against that and you know and, and i mean nist and the fbi and others have come out and said do not use sms for two-factor like the truth is like that's the only ones that's really ubiquitous today like these and that which is why it's it's so uh, commonly used today and like the argument is better than nothing well okay sure it's better than nothing but we can also do much much better both for authentication on the device many devices can include biometrics i think you're going to see m many more things where you know, authentication, instead of being, I type in a password, it's going to be, I'm going to get a notification on my phone. I'm going to do some type of, you know, you know, fingerprint or face ID or other kind of auth on the phone to authenticate my transaction. And then that, then that's going to be the direction that things are going to, they're going to be going, right? You're going to see money more passive biometrics as well. The number of sensors in people's lives is set to explode. You know, it, there will be 
billions and tens of billions of sensors in the world just you know, associated with everything and the way that people are going to authenticate them is going to change it's not going to be let me type in my four digit pin or even let me have this piece of plastic where i have a mag stripe i'm going to swipe it or you know or, or wave it or those type of things it's going to be like the, a lot of this the, this type of authentication has become much more passive and much more natural interactions right i mean i'm going to walk into my house my house will recognize me you know, based on the fact I'm carrying my phone, based on, you know, potentially voice or, or facial recognition, there's a number of other signals uh, that they can use. But I'm going to walk into my house, it's going to know that it's me. I'm, it's not going to have to go and type in my four digit code to like unlock my alarm or anything like that, right? And likewise for my car, likewise for brick and mortar stores that, you know, I interact with, likewise for travel, and not just like at the airport, but just the entire travel journey going across, you know, when I kind of go, if I step into my autonomous vehicle or, you know, or like or even ride, ride share vehicle, like the authentication would be much more seamless in those those cases. Hotels, rental cars, you know, restaurants, etc. All of these things are going to be just much more natural and honestly much more human. I mean, the way that, that people are going to be, like, identify each other and then technology is going to become more of an enabler uh, for, uh, for these type of use cases. And, uh, you know, just because like the way that people do authentication today it's very contrived and it's, it doesn't really serve the, the purpose that it needs to. It's, 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 it's hit a scalability limit. I mean, the number of accounts that people have to keep track of and, and authenticate to, the notion of like the private data and like the, the, the fact that, you know, the private data is, is, is increasingly being compromised and the fact it can't be, you know, relied on for, for authentication. I think in many cases, like because technology and sensors and machine learning have reached the point now that you can do many of these things more passively, I think that we're going to see a transformation in the product experiences experiences with interacting with services where many of these, these things are going to be just become much much more natural and and much more human interactions rather than something like okay what is your password okay what is your mother's maiden name okay you know swipe this card like the, those type of interactions all right john well thanks for painting us a picture of the future of authentication and very exciting company great yeah thanks for for having me on and yeah i'm very excited to be here 